In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. Today, we're going to be tender and pliant because if we're dry and hard, we'll die. And my guest today, who seldom thinks, because it's bad for him, is Dimitri Portnoy. Dimitri, is Stalker a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? Stalker is a movie that has been remade, will be remade, is itself a remake, everything that you can think of. There's a connection between Stalker and the idea of remaking. It's just in a continual loop of this movie will have, all this has happened before, all this will happen uh, again. Oh, sure. Uh, and in fact, to some extent, Stalker invites you to consider every movie as a remake of something. Fair. Uh, so then before we get too deep into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to the, I guess, my audience? I don't know. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a screenwriter. Uh, I have a movie that was theatrically released this year called St. Judy. With Congratulations. A terrific cast, including Michelle Monaghan, Common, Alfred Woodard, Alfred Molina. Please see it. It uh, is available everywhere at home. I am a co-host uh, on a podcast called Game Brain, where we discuss board games and game nights, uh, and playing games with friends. And if you're a fan of board games, uh, this podcast goes deep into board game, like, lore, and, like, deep pulls for board game stuff, like, Kickstarter backer games and everything, and, like, if you en- if you enjoy game nights in any way, you gotta check out this podcast, because they are the game nightiest nerds I've ever heard. It's uh, great. Sure. The big hosts are Matthew Robinson and Tom Donnelly, uh, and uh, we are members of their gaming group, uh, and we take turns co-hosting and uh, talking about games and uh, other things. I'm mostly the one who talks about other things. <laughs> so you said that Stalker has been remade. I'm, I'm afraid I did not know this. Tell me about that. Well, Stalker is itself a remake of itself. It was shot twice. Uh, some people say it was shot three times. The Soviet government that financed the film forced Andrei Tarkovsky to use a special Soviet film stock that failed and disintegrated um, as it was developed. So the entire film had to be reshot on the same locations with the same actors. Wow. So it in itself is a new version of itself. That's hysterical. It is uh, an adaptation of a science fiction novel, a fairly short novel by a very famous uh, and critically acclaimed uh, Russian writers called the Strugatsky Brothers. Uh, the novel, Everyone knows the Strugatsky Brothers. Well, a lot of people do. <laughs> They've sure actually they been published here, uh, and they, uh, new books by them, they, they are both dead, uh, recently deceased, but translations of their books uh, keep coming out uh, and, in fact, uh, keep being made into movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I should have written down the titles. That's okay. And I have not. No. But the Strugatsky brothers, you can look them up. Tarkovsky changed the title. The novel is called Picnic on the Roadside. Uh, Tarkovsky changed the title to Stalker. Stalker is the only English word that Tarkovsky ever used for a title. And, of course, it's 
the wrong English word, or at least <laughs> has very different connotations. It's not about a scary stalker uh, like Psycho or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Um, it, the meaning is uh, the James Fenmore Cooper deer stalker meaning uh, of somebody who tracks game and actually finds uh, pathways in the wilderness to take people through dangerous territory into safety. So think of The Last of the Mohicans. Think, I will find you. I will come back for you. Uh, That's the meaning that is intended. Even in 79, it was the wrong meaning. But there you go. So I I personally had not heard of this movie until you requested it. I've since watched it and done all the things. But I was uh, at brunch with a friend of mine and... She's very smart. She loves... I would describe this as an art house movie now. It is, yes. It's always been, okay. by the way. I'm never certain, especially a movie that's coming from someplace else, what the original interpretation of what might be a wide release for something in France might be considered an art house movie here. So I don't like to assume. But we were kind of discussing like how we could summarize what this movie is. And she kind of described it as a bit of a take on The Wizard of Oz. Yes, I agree with that completely. Totally worked for me. And so I think we landed on a Russian absurdist Wizard of Oz. Yes. Uh, And uh, would you like to talk about the similarities? Between Wizard of Oz? And Stalker, yes. I'm going to... So the way I normally do this is I'll do a, a mini episode the prior week where I will say, this is what the movie's about. But I think for this episode, because... Unfortunately, I think so few of my listening audience will have seen this movie. I do think it will. And they should. And they should. And please take this as as an invitation to do so. If this is the sort of movie that you would enjoy, then you should absolutely watch this movie. The unfortunate thing is that, like, I watched this movie with a couple friends of mine, and we kind of said afterwards, like, if we weren't watching this with each other, we might, this might, and I didn't have to watch it, this might not necessarily have been the sort of movie I personally would have finished. I'm looking for a little bit more escapism in my movies. And this movie was, they weren't, what's the opposite of trying to escape someplace? (laughs) (laughs) Being trapped. Yeah. Uh, yeah, And and there's a story behind that. A good friend of mine, uh, uh, whom I won't name, uh, (laughs) uh, because he he probably may not want me to name him, um, is a very successful screenwriter. And many years ago, he pitched a remake of Stalker. Oh, really? Um, as an idea at a major studio that you have heard of and still exists and was a major studio. Got it. Since the beginning of time in LA. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, they said, yes, let's watch the movie. Uh, and a bunch of studio executives rented a screening room, got a print. Of Stalker, uh, it was long enough ago so that they actually they got actually a, a, print. a film yeah, yeah. print. And in the first fifteen minutes, um, one by one, they left uh, until oh, my friend no. finished watching the movie alone. That's so sad because this is not a short movie. This is not a short movie. It's a two-hour and forty-minute movie. Yes, in two parts, uh, but. It's usually played with no inf- intermission. The last time I saw it was at LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Art, where the showing was sold out weeks in advance and nobody left. Uh, but this has been my experience with Tarkovsky movies. Of course. 
all the time where uh, you start out with a small audience, half of whom leaves. Years pass and fewer people leave. Years pass and everybody stays. And then gradually the audience fills out until the movie is sold out. It's a movie that I don't think you can kind of casually turn on. But I think it's the sort of movie that as soon as we watched this movie, we were like, all right, we've got three or four people, each of us in our lives, to tell about this movie, and they need to see it. So it's, I think it's one of those things that kind of like permeates out and hits the people that need to be hit by this movie, and then they come together, and that then you get your sold-out crowd at LACMA. Uh, sure. Uh, this is the first Tarkovsky movie I've seen, and I hated it. Oh, no. Oh, my God, I hated it. I have had no idea what I was watching or why. Uh, and, of course, uh, with repeated exposure to other movies and a reintroduction to this one, uh, Tarkovsky ultimately became my favorite filmmaker. His book about filmmaking is called Sculpting in Time, and he's really an architect of time. He makes movies that are stories that are also spaces that you can revisit. And I always find myself welcome, and I always have a very different experience each time I do. That's kind of amazing. So speaking as someone who has now watched this movie for the first time, the basic premise is no one really uses their name. So there's this guy who is a stock... So something has happened. We are in a somewhat post-apocalyptic dystopic future where a meteorite or something landed in the middle of Russia and... Well, we don't even know that it's Russia. We don't. That's in true. fact, the title suggests that it's the United States. That's true. That I... Yes. But uh, you're the, right. The, we the, don't... The, the pre-credit role. Yes. Nobody has any names, so you don't know where you are. And so it's kind of just like a, a bleak world, but where this meteorite landed has kind of been called the zone. Yes. And no one goes there. Except for this guy called the Stalker, who leads expeditions into the zone. People pay him to lead them into the zone. Can you tell them why they are led into the zone? Because in the zone, there is a room where if you enter enter it, uh, will make your innermost, biggest, deepest wish come true. And obviously, that's very desirable. So the Stalker enters the zone with the writer and the professor. Sure. Let, let, let's talk about who the stalker is. Yeah. Right? Because the stalker is very scared. Oh, uh, yeah. Terrifying. Uh, uh, unlike every expedition leader who is urging his followers on and saying, everything will be all right, I will protect you. This stalker says... This is incredibly dangerous. You must follow my every direction. And yet I can't guarantee to you that following my directions will save your lives. And at whenever the three of them are going someplace, the stalker is always the last one to go. That's right. He is the cowardly lion. Yes. So there's also a scientist is it scientist uh, or it's scientist and not professor? Or did I write down the wrong thing? Well, in Russia, a professor would be a scientist. Okay. He, he's not a professor of, professor of literature. Uh, in, in fact, he carries with him something that looks like a thermos. Right. Uh, but isn't. 
Uh, he's got his thermos and he's got sandwiches. He's happy. Yes. Uh, the thermos is something highly technical. Uh, he's in the zone to do something heartless. He, when he speaks, he doesn't emote. He is the woodsman. He is the tin woodsman. Do you remember what the writer is like? The writer is kind of the most anxious. As we were kind of watching them head towards the zone, the writer was the one who kind of needed to fill every space with words. Mm-hmm. And He's I, a chatterbox. He is. And I remember turning to my friends and going, well, this guy's definitely going to die. Yes. Uh, uh, but how would you characterize him? Does he make bad jokes? Does he fill the air? He can't shut up, right? He, he can't, can't stop up, talking. But it's mostly self-deprecating, this is why my life is bad type Yeah, things. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. Ah, I'm, got it. All right, I see what you're doing. He's the scarecrow. Uh, now, there's no Dorothy in the movie. Uh, well, there is, but they leave her at home. They leave her at home. Very good. Uh, there's Toto. Uh, Toto is a German shepherd. Who shows up, like, three quarters of the way through the movie and is definitely the best character. Oh, he's, a, he's like, the character that you, you would want to follow. Yeah. Because he actually, or she, I, I think, it's, I, I'm not sure, uh, actually knows how to survive in the zone. Yes. Uh, so, obviously, they're going to a room. Uh, where a flaming disembodied head is going to fulfill... No, no. But (laughs) But they're going to some place where flaming disembodied head or not, their greatest, deepest wish is supposed to be fulfilled. And that is the Wizard of Oz. That is the Wizard of Oz. What is also the Wizard of Oz is the flaming sequences. The flaming sequences are shot in... Sepia. Black Black and and white. Black Black and and white. And the zone is shot... In full color, which... None of us were expecting, because again, we all went in with no knowledge of this movie. And so the zone is kind of surrounded and protected by military encampments. But once they get in the zone, the military is not going to follow them because uh, the military is afraid of what's in the zone. So the stalker leads them and they figure out this kind of train car situation and they load it up and they they go run around, running around this thing. They sneak in behind a train, they figure out and they make it into the zone and all of a sudden you cut and you're in full color and every single one of us was like, oh, all right, let's rock and roll. They're in Oz. They are. Uh, and, and of course, Tarkovsky, the filmmaker, n- knows this. Yes. I, I mean, there's nothing in this movie that's not completely, totally deliberate. On purpose, yeah. <laughs> on purpose. Um, and interestingly enough, there is not a sense in which the novel Picnic on the Roadside is uh, a retelling of the Oz books. Uh, but the movie's definitely a remake, an unofficial remake, sure. of course. Certainly a spiritual successor or a, sure. a, re- a reimagining. I don't, it, I, we've talked about kind of reimaginings, reinterpretations before. Like we did the Groundhog Day episode, mm-hmm. and Groundhog Day is a movie that's never been remade, but there have been a lot of movies that we would describe as spiritual Happy successors. Happy Death Day yeah, exactly. and, and, and that type of stuff. Every episode of a sci fi television show ever. Sure, sure. Tarkovsky is very conscious of that. There are a couple of things that I want to point out. Please. Uh, it's a science fiction film. It's not a fantasy. Do you remember what happens in the first scene? Uh, which first scene? The first scene of the, in the zone? Of Stalker. Oh, the first, very first scene of Stalker. They're in a bar. Uh, even before that. Is the first scene the one where we see the counter in the pond with the fish? The in the first scene in Stalker, if I remember correctly, is when the hero wakes up. 
Oh, okay. That's... And he's in bed yes with his no. wife and his daughter. There's the credit scene initially where they're showing the bar and it's people walking in, walking out. That's right. That's the credit sequence. Yeah. Then You're they... absolutely right. With the ye- I think the yellow credits right. over, over, over the black and white. Then they go to the stalker's home where uh, there's the daughter in bed, the mother in bed, and the stalker in bed, mm-hmm. father. And kind of the room is shaking a little bit. Because of a passing we train. We assume a passing train. And then we kind of go to the stalker again, and his eyes are open. He gets out of bed, he takes a watch, he's kind of sneaking past everybody trying to get out, and that's the first scene of the movie. That's right. Uh, So that's important, because of the kind of science fiction this movie is. It is not The Matrix. Uh, It is not the Philip K. Dick book, uh, where, where... in an epistemological kind of conundrum. Is this real? Is this actually happening? In the very scene of the movie, the hero wakes up. This is actually happening. Everything that we're seeing is real. Um, and that's why Tarkovsky spends 10 minutes showing us the hero waking up. Yes. By the way, the daughter never sleeps. I don't know if you've noticed that. I wasn't paying attention the, to her The eyes. daughter it, always keeps her eyes open. Her eyes were open? Yeah. I I thought on the first pass they were closed, but maybe, maybe, maybe. but I would okay. believe that the daughter never sleeps sure. for reasons later. Um, the, I would describe this not like as a traditional sci-fi. I would describe this as a philosophical, uh, philosophical sci-fi in a sense Definitely. that there are no special, uh, with one exception, I don't think there are any special effects. Uh, and no the, photographic effects. Yes. The, yeah. There are sets, yes. there's makeup, yes. there's camera movements, there's, there's weather. The only thing that felt like a special effect, which may not have been intentional, was uh, later, as they're getting closer to the room, we have this sand, this room that's just full of like little mini sand dunes. Yes. And there's a bird that flies through. Mm-hmm. And it, it disappears. It, it Okay, it does disappear. That was supposed to happen. Yeah, Just yeah. It's to show that there are discontinuity, discontinuities in space and time All right. in the zone. That was the sense we got, but because there hadn't really been anything like that, of that style up until that point, we weren't quite sure, but good. Okay, so that is supposed to be there. Uh, so the stalker wakes up and his wife has this impactful monologue saying, anytime you go into the zone, there's a really good chance you're going to die please don't go and he's like i I have to go this is the thing that i do so he puts his little uh thing around his neck which never comes up and i don't know what it's for i assume it's for sweat and uh and he goes he meets up with the writer he meets up with the professor and begins walking them through kind of the process of what's about to be happening yes and they meet in the best Brooklyn bar of all time, right? Yes. With, 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 with these distressed wood plank floors uh, and two artisanal liqueurs that you, 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 you know. You can imagine that once upon a time it had a, it, it had quite the, the mixologist. Yes. It probably still does. That, that, I'm sure. You, you, you know, but, uh, uh, she's not gonna deign serve anything to passers-by of course you know not. who are not regulars you need to be a yes a regular thank you so then they go on their adventure they go, and they enter oz at which point we kind of discover so then they have this moment where the stalker goes off and just being like he just kind of lies down for a little bit and it certainly felt to me like 
that was the only moment where he was like calm and relaxed because he was finally back in the zone where he felt like he had this sense of belonging. Let me ask you, would you go to the zone? I did keep saying don't let them into their zone, but I mean, I'm not a big fan of nature, so probably not. But the idea of finding a room where you go inside and your greatest wish is granted, I feel like you gotta. Not your greatest wish. Well, your most real, most innermost wish. Your innermost wish. Which you yourself may not actually be aware of. This is part of the moral philosophy of Of this film that the characters endlessly discuss being Russians. Uh, or, or or Americans well, be, be or whoever it is they are. Be, yes, yes. Philosophers. The so they begin exploring and this and the room is almost immediately in front of them, but the stalker says, You could just walk up there, but if you do, you'll die. And the movie would only be ninety minutes. Which hmm. Come back to me on that. Sure. Uh, but the uh but the but, but so the writer goes and walks to the room and he's about to get there. And then a voice says, no, you better turn around. What does it say? Go back. You know, I don't remember what it says in Russian precisely. It's more of a stop advancing. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, and not only that, but there's a like a tree branch that seems to come into view briefly, uh, anticipating the Blair Witch Project. There's a whole bunch of decor in this movie, and natural things in this movie. I did not pick up on that, but that, I could definitely see that. That that anticipate that. So he so he turns around and joins them, because basically they have to go around and around to sneak up on this room. Even though it's in the center of the zone, or and you can see, find it right away, you can't just walk right in. You have to go through the stages and trials of taking the correct path to the zone. Which, of course, invokes another famous philosophical conundrum, Zeno's paradox. That you can't ever actually quite get oh, the, to where you're heading. The, the paradox of this, of you have a space, you cut that space in half, you cut that space in half. If you cut that space in half infinitely, you'll still never be there because there will always be a little bit more space to cut in half. That's right. And the zone is an illustration of that. In parts. In parts. Uh, be- because it folds space-time. And, and by the way, again, the movie is never totally clear no. about that. It hints at that. The scientist, the professor, can possibly explain it much better, but he doesn't really want to talk about anything. No. Because he's the only one there with a secret. A very... Sp- well, yeah, no, you're right. The only one there with a secret. The... So they go through and they start going around and they start passing through the zone and it's weird and tense and ang- and anxious making. They ha- they have this method of like it going a little bit forward, advancing, going a little bit forward, advancing. And it was one of the visual things that on the on the cover on like the Amazon because we watched it on Amazon. Uh the Amazon cover was uh a bunch of bolts, nuts, Yes, nuts. Tied, tied together by, in, on the poster bandages. string, in this case, bandages, yeah, bandages, cloth, whatever have you. So what would happen is the stalker would, th- he had a bunch of them, he would throw one of these bolts on string forward, either the writer or the professor would go forward to where that is, and then the other two would catch up. Basically, because you can see the nut flying through the air. Uh, and see that there's no like folded distortion yeah. or space time, and so that's what we don't really get until 
we get two real instances of the of the space uh three real instances of the space time folding mm-hmm. the bird the bird is the first one or the, i'm sorry the bird is the third one the first one is when uh they're moving forward and the professor's rucksack gets left behind and he refuses to move on without the rucksack. So the writer and the stalker go because on without the him. Because the thermos is in because there. Because the thermos is in there. And then they go through this tunnel and waterfall and they come out on the other side and the professor's just sitting there eating his yeah. sandwich. The meat grinder. The meat grinder. Yes. And they get to the other side and the professor's just sitting there and not and none of them are kind of entirely certain how that happened. Yes. Although they come to the conclusion... That the zone has let the professor through. Yes. Uh, Now, there's another instance in the movie uh, where you see a bunch of tanks and military equipment in the middle of a meadow. And and they've, like, practically disintegrated. They they look ancient. Uh, And and Stalker suggests that this can't be explained just with the passage of time. These tanks are trapped in a sink of time where time is passing at a different rate. I described it as a, a very Miyazaki-style uh, visual. Very Miyazaki. I am completely convinced that Miyazaki saw this, saw Tarkovsky movies and is very influenced by them. Because Kurosawa is also a person who worked with Tarkovsky collaborators. Of course. Uh, and actually made movies in Russia with Tarkovsky's help. The one that specifically reminded me of was uh, the Miyazaki movie, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Sure. That was the one that was like, yep, that's it. That's the one. So the tank visual. Yeah, there are also portions of Spirited Away. Absolutely. Uh, and, and portions of Princess Mononoke. And, and even... and. You might laugh. I invite you to laugh at this. But, but Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, if you remember, there's a long sequence in the movie where the three of them walk through a forest and discuss oh, moral yes. philosophy. That is true. Uh, which felt very, very much like Stalker to me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I agree. That works. It's This movie came out in 1979, and... It, it is inarguable the influence that it's had. As soon as we started watching this movie, like, the first thing I did was I turned to my friends and said, hey, have you guys seen Metropolis? Because it's just one of those movies that's just kind of, like, in the background if you dig deep enough into the origins oh, sure. of these things. The second instance of kind of space-time dilation is they lay down to take a nap in the middle of the day for some reason, and the stalker kind of dreams of the dog that they're about to meet. Yes. And that's the time dilation because they haven't met the dog yet, but they're going to. And we don't necessarily know what this dog is, other he, than the fact that it's a good boy. Yes, he, he also dreams of running water uh, and some Russian icons and Roman coins in the stream. Yes. So he's dreaming of a whole bunch of deep time, archaeological time things. Again, because of the distortion. And, you know, because it wouldn't be the United States without Russian coins in a stream. Uh th- it wouldn't be, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we finally, we continue on this adventure. People are angry. People make up. They keep, they finally make it to the entryway of the room. Yes. And what they kind of talk about is Stalker's mentor was a guy now called Porcupine. Porcupine is one of the few people who did in fact enter the room and was given unbelievable wealth. But a week later, killed himself. He hung himself. And 
they finally just kind of discuss why. Do you want to take it from here? He didn't want wealth. Sort of. So on the quest to find the room, Porcupine's brother was killed. And so Porcupine finally makes it to the room and you assume that what he wants more than anything else would be to have his brother back. Yes, he wanted to be a saint and found out he was Bill Gates. Uh, There's lots of people I'd go with. Perhaps not Bill Gates. Perhaps not Bill Gates. Bill Gates gives a lot of money and time away. Sure, absolutely. There's plenty of other miserly figures that we could potentially pull from, possibly even from popular culture right now. Sure. But... Politics. Yeah. Yeah. Who can say? Yes. But, so the room, so his deepest, like, his greatest desire in the core of his spirit was money. He, in the core of his spirit, he didn't want his brother back more than he wanted money. And so coming to the the realization that that's who he was as a human being forced him to kill himself or led him. It, it is what it is why he killed himself. Yes. Cause they discuss how the room isn't, it will grant your most desire, but not the one that you're, that you're actively thinking about. It's the one that's, that really is representative of who you are as a human being. And that's why a lot the, the stalker said he can never go in the room because Having that knowledge as to who you are so perfectly exampled is terrifying. And and he's scared. And he's scared He is that. the cowardly lion. Yeah. Although, I have a theory that he has gone in the room already and refuses to go back. Uh, actually, I believe... That, that is a very interesting reading. I believe the room walked into him. I could see that too. Okay. But go on. So... What ends up happening is the professor, his thermos is actually a 10 kiloton bomb because he wants to destroy the room because there are some people out there where if they got their fondest desire, it would just be bad. We know. We know who they are. Yeah. So he wants to take the room off the table and make it so that they can't have their fondest desire. So whatever good it could have provided, he wants to make sure it doesn't also provide bad. He is a true utilitarian moral philosopher. Right. And then the writer is kind of comes to the conclusion that he he doesn't want to know who he is deep inside because he's worried he's such a wretch, and I think he doesn't want that confirmed. He wants to continue being brainless and uh, ignorant. Yes. He is the scarecrow. And so it's the Wizard of Oz where the wizard is here to provide them with what they want, and they say, no, thank you. We're, we don't. We don't know who we will be with that, so we choose to be the person we already know. So after two and a half hours of walking around, they get to where they're going. Uh, and true to Zeno's paradox, they can never take the last step. Yeah. And it comes to be revealed that the stalker finally gets back home to his wife and he's complaining, no one ever goes in. No one ever wants to know. And he's like, I go through hell for these people, but no one ever wants the thing that the thing and his wife says i'll go with you i'll go in the room and he says no 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 not you so that uh, be, said, because women cannot be main characters in the tarkovsky movie no unfortunately that is one of yeah one a, of his weaknesses well we're we'll be different sure absolutely the, one of the interesting things i one of the things that annoyed me about this movie and all three of us watching this movie got it annoyed about was they get this kind of like little train car and get into the zone mm-hmm. and then they say that send the train car back yes 
Uh, the stalker does. The, the stalker does. And we're just sitting there going, how are you going to get home, bro? We never we, see it. We don't it. know. We, we don't, don't know. see it. Which Because they have to walk out past the military encampment. And unless the military guys are now terrified of them, because they were shooting at everything before. Sure. All of a sudden, they're not going to shoot at something walking we out don't, of the zone? We never know how they get back. But we do know something about the stalker's daughter. We do. So we get back and... The zone was entirely in color. When they returned back to the outside world, we returned to black and white. Except when we're dealing with the daughter. Because when we're dealing with the daughter, the world is in color again. And why? Because she is or has a fragment of the zone within her person. And she also has this ability to warp space-time. Yes. Because one of the last shots of this movie is the daughter sitting alone in full color looking at different glasses on a table and she stares at them and telekinetically moves them off the table. So before when the room was shaking due to what we thought was a train, Mm -hmm. it's possible it had been the daughter who had been shaking the room all around her. Absolutely. So the scene that we miss is Charles Xavier showing up and saying that he'd like to talk to her about the Xavier Institute for Gifted Children. Yes, she might be the first Russian-American ex-person. They do refer to her as a mutant. They refer to her as a girl with no legs. Uh, and in fact, she doesn't walk. She, she she can't walk. She has, yeah, the crutches. And, um, and, and when we see her walking in the first shot after the room, she's actually on her dad's shoulders. Right. Which... Which I had actually said, like, we were sitting like, she's walking. Everyone said she couldn't walk. I said, I bet she's on her dad's shoulders. 30 seconds later, Sam was right. Yeah. Yeah. But she was Uh, in color and it's wild. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 please. So my theory is that this is a guy who goes into the room. My theory is that the stalker at some point went into the room and the room, his greatest desire was just to have a family. To just have these people in his life. And so there's this this amazing monologue with the woman playing the stalker's wife. Where she basically says, I could have married a guy who was better, but I never looked back. And all the times that he was cruel to me and all these different things, I've never regretted it once. Because being with him, I'm only happy when I am with him. Like that horrible song at the end of Carousel. Right. It's not a good... It's The content of it isn't good, but the performance of it is fantastic. And so my theory is that his greatest desire was like was perhaps even this woman. And so she has been forced to be with this guy and be happy with him because if she leaves, she's not no longer happy. Possibly. And that's why he doesn't want her to go to the room because she might be set free. And because it is this union that has been brought together by the zone, their daughter, their progeny, is in essence a, a, a part of the zone because she was created by the zone. Um, it's also very possible that the radiation in the zone mutated his chromosomes. Absolutely. Um, and it's also possible that all the people that he leads into the zone get as transformed by the experience as he is later without even possibly being aware of it. Another theory I came up with was that they meet this dog in the zone and then the the dog leaves the zone with them. Mm -hmm. And 
I kind of had this theory that the dog was the embodiment of the zone. And it was the zone itself kind of create, fulfilling its own desire to go out and explore. My friends are saying that this could very easily be a, a prequel for the John Carpenter movie, The Thing. Sure. And the dog might also be porcupine. It also could be porcupine. All we know is that the dog is a good dog and it's the best character in the movie. Yes, and if he transforms into a monster and eats us, it's for our good. <laughs> it's for our benefit. 12 out of 10, good monster doggo. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> it is a wonderful dog. But that's kind of the movie as we have it. So I have to now ask the question, why do you want to remake this? Well, so because to me the zone that Tarkovsky discovered could support more expeditions into it and has already supported expeditions into it. Not only did Tarkovsky himself make the movie twice, the Soviet government remade it in real life as Chernobyl. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that was very expensive, yes. of course, but, but very, very much a very sweet tribute to Stalker and Tarkovsky, who died the year before Chernobyl. Not enough, not enough people know how sweet the Russian government is. It ha- happened. And if you look at photographs from the Forbidden Zone surrounding Chernobyl... Uh, with the decaying structures and the lush landscapes uh, and the mutant animals. It is very much stalker. It really is. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, it's uncanny. Uh, stalker itself was shot at an abandoned nuclear research facility. In fact, people theorize that the brain tumor that killed Tarkovsky... He acquired. He while acquired filming while filming Stalker. Did not know that. Uh, so you can watch the HBO Chernobyl as an exploration of the zone, as an expedition into the zone, especially the fourth episode where soldiers go into the abandoned zone to shoot animals and shoot dogs. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the five episodes. A little intense for me. I may have had to skip that one. Yes, but 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 there's a lot of. There are um, the color of it, the sepia tones of Chernobyl. There are shots uh, that are very much taken from Tarkovsky or very influenced by Tarkovsky's filmmaking. But Chernobyl is going, I think, too far. Uh, You know, we can make fictional stalkers rather than real-life stalkers. And uh, you... I assume you have not seen Annihilation, uh, the Alec Garland no, movie that came out last year. But my friends who I watched this with had seen it, and they talked about how if Annihilation isn't a soft remake of The Zone, then they don't know what is. Uh, it is. Uh, in fact, uh, it is based on a, a trilogy of books uh, by a writer called Jeff Vandermeer, mm-hmm. where The Zone is called Area X. And it is alternately called uh, the Area X Trilogy or the Outreach Trilogy. Uh, the three books are Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. And Jeff Andermeer is very consciously exploring the zone and exploring Tarkovsky's film Stalker to a lesser extent, exploring Picnic on the Roadside. Instead of a room where your wishes come true, there's a lighthouse uh, there is an alien force, an alien entity that is causing things to happen. 
like Stalker, the trilogy advances from just blood-chilling terror. Uh, Annihilation is the most terrifying book I've read, I think, this century. Uh, I'd have to go back to The Shining. Uh, And uh, the movie is not nearly as scary. Wow. Because the scariest parts of the book would be too ridiculous to film. Uh, And don't fit with Alex Garland's conception of what's happening. But then, of course, once you get through authority and once you get to acceptance, then you find out acceptance is actually what you experience as a reader. And it ends in sweetness and light, or at least if you're a science fiction reader, if you like science fiction. Sure. For stock, so there have been a lot of kind of conceptual remakes of Stalker. So then, what brings you back to kind of this source material in a way? What What do you want to do with it? Well, let Let's talk about it, please. Uh, I want to make a crowd pleasing movie. I uh, good. <laughs> I want to make a terrifying movie. Okay, so you do want to turn this into a, a more horror thriller? Yes. Okay. Uh, simply because it's already there, conceptually. Horror is more legitimate as a genre right now than it's ever been. That's definitely true. There are great horror movies, like The Exorcist, like The Sixth Sense, The Haunting, like Psycho. Okay. So, why not a philosophical horror movie? I would certainly give this to you as a philosophical thriller, but the interesting thing about this movie is that other than conversations, no one dies. No one dies, which I will want to preserve, and there are no visual effects. Which you will want to preserve. Which I will want to preserve. I agree with that as well. So, how do you make no one dying... And no visual effects scary. One of the reasons that I'm talking to you right now is because, at least for myself, I have found for myself the answer. Please. Um, Which is, so we begin with three people heading into the zone. Right. And we follow them. Uh, And at a certain point, we cut to a rescue party Uh. that is going to go after them to try to find them. Okay. And then we follow the rescue party into the zone as they find traces of terrifying happenings to the original three. And then we cut to the original three. Which find the same trace remnants of the rescue party. No. No, we just follow the original expedition knowing that something absolutely horrible is going to happen to them. Okay. But they're not aware of it. Ah, okay, so it's a jump jump back and forth in time. It's a jump back and forth. So we know there's a ticking bomb under the table. We never know when this horrible thing is going to happen. But we know that it will, because the rescue party is going after them. And, like, the rescue party may find, like, scary but incredibly inexplicable things. For example, they may find a cell phone with a video of one of the original three people smiling and looking very calm and unconcerned. All right. And maybe talking. On the phone, on the audio, you hear screaming of terror. That could be very scary. Another scary thing could be people talking gibberish. People trying to communicate something but not making sense. And at a certain point, 
the rescue party may even see the original three. That was going to be my pitch, and I have an idea for how to do that, but keep going. Please go on. My pitch is that they see the original three across a river. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like it needs to be a river because rivers are very loud. And no matter what you shout over a river, they're not going to hear you on the other side. And I feel like it's the rescue party seeing, like, even if they found, let's say, an arm, clearly the arm of one of the people, that person has the arm now. And it's this time distortion where they are seeing the past and the three are seeing the future. But the stalker knows that it, the stalker believes that it is false and it is a trick of the zone and has them run away. So where they could have gotten information that could have prevented whatever tragedy is about to befall them, instead they run away and the party is never really able to find them again. For me, I feel like one of the penultimate scenes would be them finally finding each other, but then this opportunity being missed. Sure. I I love the idea of the Loud River. I love the idea of them encountering each other. I think that the encounters could take place with the transfigured original three. I think that who there have become be, part of the zone I think in that some way. If there are, is that, I believe that needs to happen prior to the encounter across the river. Yes. They could definitely encounter all three of them, but in whatever transfigured state they end up in a tree, a dog, a dead body. Sure. But I would love it if those transfigured forms, they don't know that it's them. And in seeing their uh, this group across the river, they realize that these things that they've already found are those three. In their future. In the, in their future way. That, so, like, one of them becomes a tree and they, like, they saw a tie or something on the tree that the person was wearing. Or, some, like, resembled each other in hair or body arms. The dog... Something about each of them, they will then realize when they think back on these three things, is, oh, it was these three. Yes. We're playing with the uncanny. Again, none of these things require visual effects, but they could be very scary because we don't know what's actually happening, and we can only guess. Now, the way that I was thinking about the expedition is that there is a cause and there's a mystery. What I believe is happening in the story is that all three of the original expedition walked into the room and made the wish. I agree Their with that. deeper innermost wish. One of them was, oh my God, I want to be rescued. Got it. So the whole expedition is being organized. Because that person wanted to be rescued. Because that person wanted to be rescued. A second person who walked into this room said, oh my God, I want to be there for my daughter. Okay. And that actually happened. Now, we is don't it, I know... want to be there for my daughter or I want to, I want, I want to be, my take on that would be, I want to be around forever. And sure. I, I but... word it that way because that, because you can be around forever if you're a rock, a tree, that sort of thing. Because one of the, the things they talk about in the movie is that it, it isn't necessarily, it, it's sometime, the one example we get was that he wanted to do something for someone else, but it ended up being a selfish desire. So even if he says, I want to be there for my daughter, what he's really saying is I never, I do not want to die. Sure, sure. For me, 
imagine, run with it for a moment, that the guy wanted to be around his daughter. Okay. One of the members of the rescue expedition is convinced... Is the daughter. Is the daughter. Is convinced that she is rescuing her dad. We don't know how much time has passed, and we don't know if the dad that she remembers being around when she was growing up was actually a fulfillment of the wish that her father made when he went into the zone. Ah, uh, okay. Three decades ago. So it's so presumably it's possible that all the memories she has of her father are not real? Or they are real, but the rescue is 30 years, three 30, decades. 30 years too late. 30 years, or maybe just on time. Again, it's a time twist. Of course. Uh, and, and, and then the, the mystery of what the third wish was. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that we shouldn't know what it was, because I feel like that's the stalker's wish. Probably the stalker's wish. And and it may have to do with whether there is an outside the zone anymore, and where the rescue party is actually coming from. And that would fit into their terror before some ultimate apotheosis and some ultimate acceptance. And and uh, it would lead to some sweetness and light, and light, but through some very deep questioning of, am I who I think I am? Are my experiences who, what I think they are? Uh, so the original trio are asking moral questions. The rescue party is asking themselves if they are fake news. <laughs> I have an additional pitch in terms of some of the framing of this movie, because if that's the case and these were the people and it was this original three and then the rescue party came in, I would start the movie in the same way that they started in the bar. I would start the movie with one of the people in the eventual rescue party walking in some place, looking up, their eyes going wide, and then the stalker wakes up. Because what I would like to do is begin with the framing of here is this rescue party, potentially even here is this person who is finding and walking into the room, and then the story begins. The reason why I frame it that way is kind of in the in the absurdist theater style of we get to the very, very end, and the whole thing can begin again. Sure. The other thing is that the rescue party can bring in all sorts of weaponry and equipment and stuff that can break down or can be very... or can be lost and then found by... by the originals which and thinking that maybe it's part of what's causing the zone to actually happen like at some point he picks up a some iron pipe and throws the stalker picks up an iron pipe and throws it at the writer because the writer did something dumb or sure. something i don't remember what it, i don't specifically remember in that situation what it was sure what I'm thinking is Alien and Aliens. Horror and action? Yes. And and Alien would be the original party uh, of dread and, and self-questioning. The rescue party are all gung-ho. Yeah. And <laughs> they don't know what they're walking into. Right. Certainly, I can and, see that being the, the, uh, the inspiration for both groups. 
I like the idea of, of the time dilation in the full circle, and I'd love it if it's just, like, just these people, like, inspiring each other over and over and over and over. And encountering each other. And, oh, forever. And, and realizing that it's not just in the zone. Oh, yeah. That this is happening, but outside of it. Which is why it's so important for me that ultimately there are connections that already exist, like the father and daughter connection, and the connections that will be formed. I agree with that as well. So then with that, and and so short of actually sitting down and writing this, I, I think we kind of have an idea for what we want to do for the movie. So let's start talking about cast. Yes. Now, this isn't a particularly extensive cast, so unless we then turn around and cast the adventuring party, I kind of just have our main three and the stalker's wife. Mm-hmm. And then we can talk about who would be a good rescue party afterwards. Oh, sure. Uh, because I have the rescue party. You do have the rescue yes, party. Yes, yes. And, and, and I'm sure you'll get some ideas fine. Uh, as well. So, but, but let's start. let's start with our stalker. Yes. So the person we kept thinking of while we were watching this movie and who... I think can play abject terror very, very well. Mm-hmm. And who I think kind of is this sort of character anyway for the stalker is Woody Harrelson. Sure. Is who I had in mind. And he already has the look. He does. The I realize that if this were a full Tartovsky remake, I should be going with Russian actors, but I, I, simply, no, no, I no. simply do not know enough. No, no, neither do I. So that's why I thought Woody Harrelson would be a, a fun pick. I so agree. Who did you have for the stalker? Kit Harrington. Oh, you went a lot younger than I did. Uh, I did. Tell uh, me why. First of all, because Stalker himself is not as old as he looks. He's a <laughs> Russian. They they have hard lives. But uh, actually, <laughs> that actor is probably in his mid-30s, and uh, uh, the writer is in his late 30s, early 40s. The actors are. Interesting. The other thing is Kit Harrington is... You know, he goes beyond the wall. He does. Uh, John Snow. And is is forever changed by it. Yes, John Snow is a stalker in the series. So he doesn't have to invent a brand new character. Doesn't have to go against his image. That's true. And also, he's very earnest. Yes. He's very emotionally open. Okay. Uh, He's very caring at the same time, and I'm talking about Jon Snow, as depicted by Kit Harrington, not terribly convincing, <laughs> and not really a great leader. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all of these qualities of Jon Snow, I think Kit Harrington could bring to this role. That's fair. Uh, all right, I can see that. And, and make it really live and communicate it. Right. Also, he's very smart. Yeah. I, I, I think he can do these discussions he's also contemplative he looks thoughtful sure all right he can throw a, a nut he can he can throw and not a look nut ridiculous to string absolutely yes and he's eventually a friend to dogs eventually. yes yes it could be a big big dog and that's indeed. and we just want kid harrington to give that dog a pat on the head it's all we want sure but again, Beyond the Wall is another version of 
the song. I think, I think that's a good idea. Let's come up with all three of them, and then we'll figure out who our team is, because we'll sure, see who plays sure. off with each other. Who did you have for the writer? Oh, okay. For the writer, I, I think it would make sense for me to talk about the professor. That's fine. Let's talk about the professor. First. So, these are very Russian characters. Okay. Okay. They are depressed, and they are despairing. Okay. Uh, and like all Russian heroes, they made some horrible mistake in the past that has now damned them. Uh-oh. Uh, you know yep. where I'm heading. I have, I have a feeling I know where this, this sort of person you might be pulling in. And I'm oh, absolutely. I am absolutely, going, to I am absolutely going to go there. All right. Uh, let, you let, have? let me propose to you that if you take the three Russian actors in the original Stalker, and you kind of like smoosh them all together. Uh huh. Who will they look like? What will you have? I don't know. Louis C.K. Absolutely not. Moving on. The, the I understand the idea, but we're not because movies are collaborative, and everyone has to be a part of this. The writers and even some of the high-end actors ha- will agree to being that, but the PAs haven't personally agreed. It's the, uh... Yes, so, I know. So, no, we no, will no. not go Are we Lewis casting an actual movie? Yeah, we, if it's ideal, we have to make it possible. So, while I appreciate art, that... Movie making is the art of the possible. You're yes. not going to like my writer's suggestion either, although it's not nearly as risable. Yes. Who do you have as the professor? My professor is Sigourney Weaver. Sure. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. The The idea being someone who... I mean, let's take her character in Aliens, for example. She is someone who has the right idea, knows what's going on, and everyone keeps saying no. So I also believe her to be very, very smart, very capable, if perhaps a little bit past her time... But she's still trying to make one more grand attempt. Sigourney Weaver will never be past her time. Right. The character she would be playing. Okay. The the idea being (laughs) that this is like kind of her last big thing. Because if it's a 10 kiloton bomb, you might not be walking away from that. You might be doing both yourself and the people you're with to a horrible, horrible death. Sure, and I do believe that Sigourney Weaver and any character she plays will be will know what to do with a. I agree with that. With as a well. bomb, how to arm it, how to disarm it, absolutely. Yes, she can do it in her sleep Probably. with her eyes closed. So yeah, so that that's my pitch for the professor. So then let's talk about the writer. Sure, you went first for the last one. I'll go first for this one. My writer is, as you said, self-deprecating, constantly talking. Dark humor, but at the end of the day, funny, but in a a self-effacing kind of way. So, my writer I have is Don Cheadle. Sure. Who... I like that a lot. Yeah, can be a little bit more chaotic. Can still bring it home and say, no, you're cheating in order to, to get to make it so that we, the two of us are taking all the risks so that you don't have to. And in fact, if he plays a copywriter, he could just simply reprise his character from that Showtime show. House of Lies. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so that, which is part of the reason why I thought of Don Cheadle in the first place. You might like my casting for the writer. Please tell me. Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari. Uh, 
<laughs> who has it. all those qualities you you propose. Yeah, it's true. And, and he's not quite as guilty as Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is absolutely guilty. Louis C.K. is absolutely guilty. Aziz Ansari, my understanding is that Aziz Ansari is one of the rare instances where he actually, while there was an apology and it actually wasn't, it was a little blown out of proportions, I don't know. You're picking tough people. People I specifically avoid casting. On tough people for the reason because they are the people who would go, who would be desperate enough to join Kit Harrington on this mad quest into the zone. And, and, I and understand of course, if you're I've... doing kind of a sense of like this person in real life, but sure. we still need to have a disconnect between the person and the character. Sure. They're also kind of Russian. They're also kind of philosophical and resigned. They're kind of desperate. It's part of their persona. They're philosophers. Aziz Ansari wrote a book. I'm aware of his he, book. He, he, didn't, he didn't hire a ghostwriter. He actually is a writer. I, I'm aware of that as well. Again. And, and, and Aziz Ansari in particular is tough because my understanding is that he's come out of the other side and... He he actually is not as culpable as other people was, and he made he apologized and has uh, done everything in his power to make things right. And my understanding is that he has. So Aziz Ansari isn't it. Louis C.K. Absolutely not. We will not be casting him. Aziz Ansari. We need to think about. I'll take I'll I'll, I'll take Sigourney. I will take Sigourney without a doubt. But I I, I think you. You see that Aziz Ansari is perfect for the part. He is. Regardless of uh, of the meta, uh, of, of what he himself would represent the as the character. The problem is you can't separate an actor from what that actor represents. We can't... If your director and writer is going to be Woody Allen, I'm going to say no. It can't. Oh, be I'm him. not proposing Roman Polanski or yeah. Woody Allen. I, I'm not proposing Kevin Spacey. Good, but, <laughs> but, but know that that's a flat out no. Not necessarily because I don't believe that they would be incapable of doing this work, but because of what they represent in a grander scale. But I think what Aziz Ansari represents in a grander scale is, again, the type of Russian guilt that we see in, in Stalker, uh, where you take responsibility and you feel that you're damned and rightly damned. These In Stalker, you don't see people who think the world is against them. In Stalker, you see people who say, I screwed up. Yeah. And, and this is my only hope. And, and I'm not even For good enough. For that reason I'm alone. not good enough to even take it. I'm not good enough to get it. We can go with Aziz Ansari. Oh, okay, cool. So, Kit Harrington. Uh, will you give me Kit Harrington? You're uh, about to get like three in a row. A two. Uh, Kit Harrington. Right, right, for the rescue party, I mean. Aziz Ansari. No, no, I'm oh, saying oh, you're four about in, to get Four in a row. There are four people in the rescue party. Oh, good. So, but go on. for that, I'm going to take Woody Harrelson because you're about okay, to fine, get Okay, fine, fine. Who's the wife? Who Who is uh, Stalker's wife? Frances McDormand. Yeah. Absolutely. And I picked Frances McDormand because I honestly almost made Frances McDormand the stalker. Sure. And that, and I like that idea because it, it very easily could have been her. And like, you see this couple and it's like, well, let me take, let me go with you. No, no, no. Because he, 
Woody Harrelson doesn't want her to be the stalker. He wants her to be separate from it. Mm -hmm. Because Frances McDormand would probably be a great, possibly even better stalker, but we don't know. Sure. That's my pitch for the wife. I have no problem with that whatsoever. All right. So tell me about your rescue. Uh, Did you have anyone for the daughter? Or for that Uh, random woman the uh, writer was talking to beforehand? Oh, uh, no, no. uh, She's not a random woman. She's somebody... I'm sure she is. I just didn't know she was. She... uh, Huh. Very interesting. She doesn't have much of an impact on the story as a whole. It's more representative of who that character is. I I should know her name. The daughter in Six Feet Under, who was just um, Eliza Doolittle on Uh, Broadway. Do you... Um, do you want her name? I'm looking at it. Yes. I believe it's Femi Jerno. Yes. I, I would like her to be in, 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 in this movie as the writer's girlfriend. The, the actress or the character? The actor. Okay. You want Femi Jerno to be Aziz Ansari's girlfriend? Is that I'm pronounced, it, it's like Jamie, but with an F and then J-U-R-N-O. Oh, are we talking about the same? Oh, no, no, no. She's in Stalker. I'm talking about the American casting. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You're, so we're talking about... The, I was talking about the, the character and, wh- and what that character represents and if that character should be in the movie at all. That's right. That's right. Should the character be in the movie at all? I don't know. Maybe not. But somebody has to drive away with the hat of the writer on top of the car. I think that's a hysterically funny moment. And so you want the daughter from Six Feet Under, who yes. I know I know who you're talking about, but I can't think of yes. her name. Yes. Uh, and, and she was just Eliza Doolittle. Uh, Lauren Ambrose. That's right. All right. That's fine. Cool. So... My rescue party, you will recognize all of them. Uh, it includes an actor from Star Trek, an actor from The Matrix, an actor from Broadway, and uh, a rising star. Uh, so, so the way this normally works is because I don't have someone to counteract any of these. Mm-hmm. We're, all I have is veto power. So we're going to sure. go with every single one of these people unless it's just a flat out no. Sure. Uh, In which case, we'll collaborate. And absolutely. Out who it is. So, so please tell me who you have for the rescue party. Tignataro. Tignataro is amazing. What she will Tignataro's role in the rescue party party be? She's the leader. She's the skeptic. She's the one who doesn't actually who doesn't actually believe there's anything magical in the zone. Then she doesn't believe the room exists. She believes that all of stalkers are putting people's lives in danger and defrauding them. Then I'm going to ask this question because this is such an aspect of the original movie. Because we have stalker, writer, professor, wife, girlfriend. What is Tignataro's single word title? Because it could be leader. It could be skeptic. Commander. Commander? Tignataro as commander. I'm going to ask this question about all of them, by the way. Sure. Absolutely. Great. I love Tignataro. I think that's a great idea. Tell me who the next one is. Sterling K. Brown. I know who that is. Why can't I think of Sterling K. Brown? He's from This Is Us. He's from an incredible play the public theater put on called Father Comes Home from the Wars. He's from the oh, mini yeah, yeah. series about the that trial, the murderer's trial from yes. USC quarterbacks. His name escapes me. OJ. OJ, of course. Okay. <laughs> okay, so he was in OJ's. He's in everything. Yes. He's phenomenal. He's yeah. remarkable. I love... I, he's uh, great. Let's and, go and with him. He's the, med, he's the medic. 
Great. Uh, if there are mutations, and like medic slash biologist, if there are mutations, if, Good. if there are. Love it. Uh, and, okay. Uh, what is his one word? If, do you want it to be medic, or do you want to have a separate one word title for him as well? I would call him biomedic. Biomedic? Yes. Great. Next. Aquafina. Okay. Tell me about Aquafina. What, what would Aquafina, what would her, she's the daughter, I presume. Yes. Okay. Uh, she makes sure that they're all sane. I could see... One of the theories of the zone is that it drives people crazy and they hallucinate. She's the psych. She's the psychologist. She is the one who gives them psych tests at, like, regular intervals, asks them questions. Like, do things taste salty to you? So she's the walking uh, Voight comp? Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Great. Uh, and, and, and she's the one, of course, who's the, the nuttiest and the craziest of them, but she's Aquafina, of course. So Aquafina is probably Sigourney Weaver's daughter? Sigourney Weaver's daughter in this respect, yes. Love it. That's great. I like that a lot. Good. And Keanu Reeves. Okay. What, what role is uh, Keanu Reeves playing in the rescue party? He's an original stalker who turned government... Uh, witness ah so he's the guide he is the guide but he's also working for the government he used to lead people into the zone now he thinks that that is a terrible idea uh and he's working for the government and going on this rescue mission because he knows the area or at least says he knows the area so i have a guess as to what your one word title for him is what, what is it? Well, it's Neo. <laughs> you know, but... That's an option. Sure. Uh, May but I make he... another suggestion? Uh, absolutely. Porcupine. Porcupine. Yes. Because it would be really interesting if Keanu Reeves is the porcupine that trained Woody Harrelson, but is also the porcupine that's 30 years later leading this thing. Yes, absolutely. I like that. So, two of these people, Aquafina and Keanu Reeves, have a personal connection to the party. Two of them don't. Yes. We intercut between, again, the original and the rescue. Okay. The more we intercut, the more we see that the rescue party isn't what they seem, that the situation isn't what they see, what it seems, that the time scale isn't what it seems. And this is all the result of the original three walking into the room, making two wishes. Mm-hmm. That we can guess at, and one wish that we cannot. We cannot. Good. I like it. With so my original pitch was that the movie opens with someone walking into what we will learn is the room, and then this, and then in in the rescue party, and then our our story begins. Of these four, who would you like that person to be at the very beginning? I think Aquafina. Okay, good. Because of all uh, of Tig Sterling. I'm sorry, I'm not on the first name basis. No. But many of these people, of Tignataro, Sterling K. Brown, Kennedy's, Aquafina is the one that we won't suspect as a member of Good. the rescue party. I like it. it, it within, this, within this context. I agree. And Plus, I, think I feel she idea. should be in every movie. <laughs> yes. In fact, I believe that all four of these people should be in every movie. I mean... I love every single one of these. I think this is great. So what that brings us to is writer, and it brings us to director. Now, sure. presumably, you want to be the writer. I want to be the writer, yes. Okay. I have 
someone else, just kind of in case. Go ahead. Uh, I had Robert Eggers, who recently did The Lighthouse. I know, I know. And The Witch. And The Witch. Uh, and he's doing, I don't know if it's been announced already, but he's doing a major film. I think with a large, with a large sure. budget. But presume, I mean, I can see if it's in production. Uh, the Northman, The Knight, and Nosferatu. Uh, are those three different movies or one? That's a good question. <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay, he's almost too perfect for this. <laughs> you, you, you know, that, that's, I, that's I, why um... I grabbed him. I had a I had a feeling that I would end up crossing his name out and writing in your name. He, but I wanted to give you almost, I wanted to give you a fight. Almost, he's almost too per- he's almost too perfect. The problem for is, this. he's just so busy. Clearly, he's very busy. The other thing is. Uh, Let's ask a question. Here. Okay. Are we making a feature? Yes. Or are we making a mini series? A mini series. I mean, the the nature of this podcast is I like to keep everything to movies. Sure. Just because then the pitch becomes different if you're turning something into a, a TV show. And I think many of the movies we talk about and many different things that we do could very easily be very good TV shows. And certainly we're in, it, we're in a golden age of television, quote unquote. So many of this could and possibly even should be TV. But for our purposes, we'll leave it to a movie so that way it's a ideally contained story. Okay. So the feature filmmaker that I would suggest, unfortunately, only writes and directs his own movies and has never done anything else. But okay. I will throw the name out. Uh, Paul sure. Thomas Anderson. Of course. That's also a wonderful name. I, I think he's philosophical and mysterious. And can do amazing dialogue and can do silence and has done great work with actors. Mm-hmm. I'm sure has seen Stalker. That's important. Sure. And so then I guess between Robert Egger- Eggers and Paul Thomas Anderson, which would you enjoy working with more? Paul Thomas Anderson because he made my favorite movie of the century so far. Okay, which was? There Will Be Blood. Got it. So Paul Thomas Anderson is also then your idea for director. Yes, it would because have to be. Because he is a writer it, it, it would have to be. I had someone else for director. Now, Robert Eggers also normally is the writer and the director, but mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to have the two kind of competing philosophies because I think that's what makes for an interesting philosophical film is the conversation. So I have a different director as well. So the director I had is uh, Alejandro G. Inaritu. Sure. Who did, or is most... Most recently known for Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance for uh, The Revenant. The Revenant is another journey into the zone in many respects. In many respects. And of course, his camera work. I specifically picked him, and because he, like, natural light, sort of natural lighting, and that's important. But I specifically picked him because of Birdman. And the reason being is it's. At the end of the day, one man going on a journey of self-discovery, if that ends well or doesn't, and kind of bringing all these people along on a ride one way or the other. Absolutely. And also that Michael Keaton has a daughter. Uh, Yes, and I I, I think that Stalker is a movie that could be shot in one take. That is something we haven't talked about yet. The the nature of Stalker and what, what makes stalker very impressive and i guess he had practice at it at that point is that it is a very very there are very long takes in this movie there are so many single takes with no cuts 
obviously there are cuts and it's just this movie has to have them just for the nature of going from black and white to color but also it felt very much like a stage play in that it was just a long performance yes while i disagree that it will be done all in one take because i think if you want to do some of the visual things you need to be able to cut away and take a look at something and if you need to have people looking at themselves or i think imagine tricks i think think it would be amazing imagine this but let's not go nuts the original three are walking along one of them lays down a cell phone and it's picked up by one of the rescue parties right you could do the movie in one take not literally in one take they would be birdman was not literally shot in one take but there's a way to do it. Yeah, I don't there's disagree. There's a way to do it. I uh, think so. Sam Mendes is doing a movie called 1917. It's coming out. He's not doing it. He's done with it. It's coming out for Christmas. It's all shot and it, it's all Made seamlessly to... blended into. That's pretty cool. Into one take. Yeah, it would. It wouldn't be the first time. I'm not. Oppo- I'm not opposed to the idea. Just make it happen. Sure. Sure, that's a possibility. Going with your uh, it, yeah. wonderful, brilliant suggestion uh, of Inaritu, then Oscar winner. Yes, then then we'll have Paul Thomas Anderson take a back seat, and you'll just have to write it on your own. Sure, I think we've got a movie. I think I'm we gonna, do. I'm going to read you back everything we've got. <laughs> instead of it being Port, uh, <laughs> instead of it being Tartovsky's Stalker, we have Portnoy's Stalker. Sure. With the stalker being played by Woody Harrelson, the writer, Aziz Ansari, Professor Sigourney Weaver, the wife, Frances McDormand, the girlfriend is Lauren Ambrose, the commander is Tignataro, the biomedic, Sterling K. Brown, the psychologist and secretly daughter is Aquafina, and Porcupine will be played by Keanu Reeves. All of this will be written by our very own Dimitri Portnoy and directed by Alejandro G. Inaritu. And that is Stalker. There you go. Thank you, you so much for I, inviting me. Thank, thank you for suggesting this. I honestly would never have done this movie if you hadn't brought it up. The movie that we've crafted, are you going to go see it? Yes. Excellent. But but let me say something. Please. What should be remade uh, other than everything? Uh, what's interesting to me is to remake movies that create a world that you can revisit. And that way you're not repeating anything. You are traveling I agree. into this space that was pioneered by somebody, that was discovered by somebody. In, in this case, probably by Frank L. Baum. Probably. My idea of a remake is not something like Exorcist, where they just shot it all again. I think that's a failure of a remake. I think a remake is something that either finds a story that that was a good idea but was executed poorly and therefore should be redone so that you can take another shot at executing it well, or something where it represented something in its time, but so much time has passed that it now no longer represents that, and to then take that and reimagine it for a more modern age... The episode that's going to be coming out right before this one is uh, 16 Candles. Oh. So that's... A huge favorite. Have you watched it recently? 
I don't. I'm scared. That's I'm the problem. I'm, I'm afraid. That's too. why. So it's a movie that, when it came out, was a bona fide, genuine hit and deservedly yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. The but one you thing I now and it doesn't work anymore. The one thing I know about Sixteen Candles is that it has an utterly respectful and totally unpredict, uh, uh, unproblematic depiction of uh, Asian people. That's not even what I'm talking about, too. <laughs> it's. Oh my god! Listen, listen to the episode that came out two weeks ago, and you'll see what we had to say about it. It's a, a friend and comedian and, um, named Bridget Marshall who was our guest, and she was very, very good. But yeah, so then I guess we talked about it a little bit up top. But remind people, what would you like to promote? Do you have any social media you'd like oh, people to follow? Absolutely. And again, my my movie that I wrote, Saint Judy, directed by Sean Hannish and starring Michelle Monaghan. Common, Alfred Woodard, and Alfred Molina. Please watch it. It's Where a, can people find it? Uh, anywhere. Amazon. It, it, it's everywhere. It, it's on all the streaming platforms. It is. Okay, great. And Game Brain, where I'm a, a co-host with Matthew Robinson and Tom Donnelly, where we talk about uh, board games, which is something that has replaced poker for game night. Perfect. Because you don't want to take people's money. You want to beat them with your mind. Taking their money is easy. Yes. You want to make them feel worthless. You want to crush them. Because poker does depend on luck, but board games is are really about your smarts and your skills. And if you can beat them at their own game, I like it. it'll make them feel as horrible as possible do you have any social media that you'd like people to follow uh no no i'm on facebook uh i am on imdb uh i don't have anything of my own uh, because it's 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 an it's a moral hazard hazard fair uh on that note if you want to follow me i'm on twitter at sam gash s-a-m-g-a-s-c-h or you can follow the podcast on twitter or instagram at ideal remake or join us on Facebook at Ideal Remake or Ideal Remake Podcast. And if you enjoyed our deep philosophical conversation about Stalker and have a movie you'd like to recommend, reach out and give us something that you think uh, Ideal Remake should cover in the future. And thank you for listening. And th- and please see Stalker if you haven't. Please. It's on Amazon. You should be able to find it. The way I've been ending this, which will be difficult for this movie, is what's your favorite quote from the movie? What's your favorite quote from Stalker? Oh, that that is very interesting. I don't remember what the exact uh, language is, but it's when the phone rings. Just a random in the vestibule in the room, and he says hello, uh, and it's a wrong number. I I I think it's hysterical. Got it. I love it. So, do you think his refrigerator was running? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) 